Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I am your host, George Mason, and this immigration series that we've talked about as being a human story uh, and wanted to humanize the subject of it, actually, uh, we've uh, come toward the conclusion now, and I'm delighted to invite our final guest in this series, uh, Dr. Ugo Magellanis. Uh, He is uh, the Associate Dean and a professor of Christianity and Culture at the Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University. And Ugo, it's so wonderful to have you with us. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Dr. Mason. It's an honor and privilege to be part of this conversation. I'm looking forward to our conversations and discussions and greetings to your audience as well. Thank you for all you do. Well, you're very welcome. So uh, as an academic, uh, you approach this, of course, uh, from a perspective that is both academic, but it's also personal uh, to you, uh, being a person of uh, Latin descent also. And so uh, I, I know that you've written about this, you teach it, and this is, the, the question of culture and immigration is part, it's just woven into everything you do. So uh, while we have had uh, different people working uh, or talking with us about this subject from the nonprofit perspective, the advocacy roles, uh, from uh, uh, congregational perspectives and that sort of thing. Uh, How do you approach this subject with your students uh, and integrate it uh, in, in your academic work? Thank you for that great question, and, and absolutely, it is very personal to me in many ways. I grew up just across the border from El Paso, Texas, and some of my early memories as a child, I remember going to school with my parents, and um, our journey was just along the river, and often I would see families, complete families, going across the border and walking and, and trying to figure out a way to get to the, to the U.S. I was on this side of the border, of course. Then later on in my life, I mean, I, many of my classmates uh, in elementary school, my, both of my parents are school teachers. And in talking to them, I found out that their parents, um, they, they were living with grandma or grandpa because their parents were in the U.S. and they were sending money. So they were my close friends. And, and I was always curious about their family dynamics and how these things would work. Later on, many years later, um, uh, I had the opportunity to serve a, a planting two churches in the U.S., I was fresh out of college and ready to save the world for Jesus Christ. And then I was appointed to to serve in this congregation. And to my surprise, uh, I was expecting, I'm not sure what I was expecting, but I thought that it was going to be a normal kind of a congregation in the sense that you're there and the congregation is already established. These were migrant workers and um, the great majority of them were undocumented. So when, when I was uh, serving as a pastor and trying to reach out to them, I encountered many, many ethical dilemmas. Um, um, I, can na- I can name a number of examples in which I found myself. And so in, in response to that situation, that pastoral situation, what I did is um, my education, even though it was a fantastic one, uh, did not address some of the concerns and dilemmas that I was facing. Uh, you are talking about the human aspect of this. It is one thing to look at immigration and a debate from an academic perspective, from a political perspective. But when you get to see the person's face to face, face, when you see and you hear their stories and you see their suffering, um, your perspective changes. Um, And and so you begin to see and understand the reasons. For example, uh, I still remember 
uh, a three-year-old that walked her, uh, through the desert with her, his parents and had to drink perfume to survive. And so it's just, you, you get to hear those stories. And then in my college years, um, I had an interesting perspective of the way the Bible should be read and how things should be interpreted. But encountering this congregation made me think and rethink and pushed me to, to think and consider ethical ways to address uh, the situations that I was facing. So for me, it is it's not just an academic subject. You are absolutely right. It's part of my own life and my upbringing, not only because of my cultural background, because of my pastoral experience. And so when I teach it and when I try to talk to people about this is, um, in fact, the chapter that I was telling you a little while ago that I wrote, uh, I'm not trying to convince persons. Uh, you and I know as pastors that... Um, when you encounter certain persons, they are very ingrained in their position. And it's difficult to persuade them. It's difficult for them to change their mind. So sometimes what I ask them is, have you had the chance to have a conversation with a person that has gone through the whole process? Have you talked to them? And to me, that's very important. Right. I, I was struck by earlier you were talking about being on the other side of the border growing up and seeing people walking across the river. The idea of crossing a river to go into a land that holds promise is filled with uh, symbolism, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, for those of us who have a, a biblical uh, background, uh, that language is very suggestive. And uh, our hymnody is often filled with that. Um, the, the, the idea of crossing the river into the promised land and how that also suggests even crossing from death to life, uh, eternal. So uh, when, we, when you think about imagery like that and you then try to wrestle as a pastor and theologian with this, uh, this challenge, uh, how do you use the biblical imagery and resources to inform you? Yeah, uh, excellent question as well. Uh, absolutely, the image of crossing borders and crossing the river and going to the promised land is, is very prominent in, in the biblical narratives, of course. The interesting thing here and reflecting later on in my life is we are in Texas. Um, many persons would say that uh, they never cross the border. The border and the river cross them. The yeah. boundaries were defined by political decisions. But nevertheless, what you mentioned is true. And one of the things that sometimes it is important for us as pastors, Christian pastors, is to think and consider uh, this idea of the promised land that everything is nice and wonderful in the U.S. It has a number of interesting implications <laughs> and ways to understand that. Uh, one thing that we often forget, some of us Christians often forget, is that um, the idea of being stranger in a land comes from God. Uh, when God is talking to the people of Israel, God is the owner and they are the foreigners. And so God is inviting people to come into God's land. And mm -hmm. by doing that, God becomes the host and the others become the guests. And later on in the biblical narrative, you may remember this. Uh, God clearly explicitly tells the people of Israel, because you were foreigners in my land, you should be kind and you should be welcoming. You should offer hospitality to others because that's my character. That's who I am. I welcome you into my land, and now you should do the same. 
be holy because I am holy means be hospitable because I welcome you. When you were no people, you were nobody, yeah. I welcome you into my land and made you people out of you. Yeah. Yeah. That raises a question for me, too, though, about this idea of what is God's land to begin with. The, the psalmist says the earth is the Lord's yes. and the fullness thereof. And while we talk about God's land in biblical terms being the promised land, uh, we, we never actually, I mean, part of the whole idea of Israel is to break this notion of regional gods, mm -hmm. right? To, to say that there, are, there is no such thing as gods of nations uh, that should be respected as different gods, but there is one God over all the nations. And so when we think about this idea of, uh, of borders to begin with, um, and, and whether, you're, whether a nation is um, proud of itself and its own identity as if it has a right to exist over against with a, with a border against someone else. It's hard to find for me in searching scripture, how to think about this idea of um, the rights of nations and borders. Uh, how do you wrestle with that? Well, absolutely. And that's an excellent observation. And I agree with you hundred uh, percent throughout the biblical narrative, both in the old Testament and the new Testament, the motif of all nations. I mean, from the very beginning of the calling of Abraham, you'll be a blessing to all nations, not just one nation, but all the nations. I think this image that God is God of all nations. And then you have it in the book of Revelation when all nations from all countries, from all ethnicities will come together. So this ideology, the borders, is a human recent construction. My my grandfather, my father, the, my father-in-law's father was a Methodist preacher and, and he pre planted churches on both sides of the river and Mexico and in the U.S. And back then. The border was just a line drawn in the, on the sand. He went back and forth. His appointment from the Methodist Church went to both places. So these ideas of protection and Christian nationalism is a more recent development and is far away from what God is trying to say in the Old Testament. I mean, from the very beginning, as I said, the calling of Abraham, it, the idea that all the nations, even Christ, when he goes to the temple, uh, my house of prayer should be called a house of prayer for who? For all the nations, not just for one particular. Even though you have a prominent story about Israel and the, and the role of Israel is important, nevertheless, it is always the emphasis that is for all the nations. And I think people would probably be interested to know that the language of nations in the, in the Bible is not equivalent to the notion of the existing nation state today that, that we experience. Nations really means uh, more like uh, ethnic groups, uh, more like, uh, in fact, ethnoi is the word for nations. Uh, and so uh, this idea that we are peoples of different nations doesn't mean we are Americans versus Mexicans versus Canadians versus you know, uh, Guatemalans. No, it, 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 it's, it's more about these ethno-linguistic groups that have a sense of cultural identity and common language and customs and these sorts of things. But those may exist in very 
it, it, across borders uh, as as intact ethnic groups, right? Correct, correct. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my good friend, historian Justo Gonzalez, uh, he's written fantastic books. He, he provides an interesting analogy uh, talking about what you're describing quite well in terms of the uh, origins of these uh, words. He says, let's, let's think about uh, our Christian journey as our employment, right? We are getting ready to retirement and retirement is our, our life together in paradise with God celebrating this fantastic banquet. So if that's what you want to do, that's your ultimate goal to get to a retirement to celebrate in paradise. And you know that in that particular place, you're going to be, let's say, we're going to move to Japan and enjoy a fantastic time together. So all your life, you're trying to learn Japanese because you know that that's what you retire. So if you bring this, if you understand that all nations and all cultures and all different groups are going to be together at the end of the day, why don't we start rehearsing now? Why, if you and I are going to retire and we know that we're going to live in a different country, we're, the very least thing that we can do is to learn the language and to learn the customs and the culture. Why is it that we as Christians, we engaged into these endless debates instead of practicing where we spend eternity? living with people from all different backgrounds, from all different ethnic groups. And if that's our eternal destiny, why don't we begin rehearsing here and now, even in here in the U.S., when it's uh, sometimes quite difficult to embrace this type of practice and character? Yes, wow, what an interesting observation. And this flies in the face of this um, missions movement uh, and the church growth strategy uh, that... Uh, a generation ago was prominent in the terms of, they called it the homogeneous church approach, right? Uh, and, and that is that people who are alike will gather together and they will help grow churches. So we should have uh, only as much as possible people who are very much alike. And you can keep breaking that down demographically until, you know, the end of time. But, uh, but it really flies into the face of, of the Pentecost spirit and the imagery that Yusto was, was uh, sharing with you about that, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Without a doubt. And, and, and you don't have to have an academic degree or any academic degree for that matter to understand that naturally our natural inclination is to associate with persons that look like us. Mm-hmm. But, but God is trying to break the mold from the very beginning, from the day of Pentecost. Go into all the ends of the earth. Go to Samaria. Go to your enemies. Yeah. And just, just keep expanding the circle. And even in, in, in the Gospels, uh, one of the exercises that I sometimes I used to ask my students to do is to read the four Gospels and to begin a list of all the persons that Jesus intentionally seeks after, that he, he wants to have that dinner. And if you look at them, they're not the typical persons that you would associate with. Right. And if that is the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, again, I'll, I'll go back to Houston's illustration. Why is, it, what is it so, why is it so difficult for us to embrace that kind of character, to embrace that kind of lifestyle, or welcoming people that are radically different from us? So being intentional. All of us have 24 hours every day. How do we spend that time together? How do we use uh, the stewardship of our time? In, in this article, in this chapter that I wrote, Again, I mean, it's difficult to change a person's mind, particularly when they are committed and, and affiliated with certain political uh, ideologies. But again, I would ask them, just sit down and have a conversation with a person that is radically different from you 
listen to their story. Don't question it. Just listen to what they have to say. And I think that's going to help us understand not only their journey, but more importantly, it will help, it will help us understand who God is and how God works in this world. You are a United Methodist uh, theologian and um, uh, seminary uh, administrator. Uh, and you wrote that particular piece on a Wesleyan perspective about uh, immigration. What distinguishes the Wesley perspective among Christians? And how might we understand how to look at this challenge of immigration from a Wesleyan uh, view? Thank you for asking that question. That's, a, that's I think it's an important question. And again, here I'm speaking from a Methodist Wesleyan uh, perspective. For us, Wesleyan Armenians, Wesley Methodists, uh, we believe that the image of God is imprinted in every single human being. Regardless of their condition, regardless of their legal status, we truly believe that everyone, every single human being has the image of God imprinted in them. And if that's our key principle, George, what the question is, what does that do in terms of our treatment of dignity and respect Yes, you may have laws and you may have different ways of thinking, but you cannot deny that the image of God is present. And I can go a step further. Um, for example, I think the Bible is clear and you can, I can make an argument that when it, it, we have instructions even from Jesus in terms of how do we treat the, the enemies. Many years ago, you may remember this Proposition 187 in California was suggesting that all immigrants, all undocumented immigrants, they were not supposed to receive any uh, healthcare or education. Right. That was a move that would make these undocumented persons worse than a combatant enemy in a war zone. Right. Because right. by the Geneva Convention, we are required to provide aid even to the enemy that is wounded. And there are some laws and some politicians out there that they want to treat undocumented persons worse than an enemy. And to those persons, I just simply ask them, do you see the image of God in this person? Is God present in their journey? And if that is the case, I think that's quite unique for us Methodists to understand. Even in the worst of cases, in the, you, you can think of the worst person that you can think that has done tremendous crimes. Even in those persons, the image of God is present, and we should have some dignity and respect uh, in treating those persons. In your tradition, there is a strong social justice uh, uh, aspect to uh, the Christian faith. And uh, certainly at Perkins, this is a, a major emphasis in the training of clergy. And so when we look at an issue like this, Yes, there's a pastoral question that you first treat the person as a human being, uh, but then there is also the larger structural matter of how to relate to the laws themselves and to uh, the, the people who are making and enforcing those laws. And this is, I think, uh, something that is difficult for some lay people to fully accept about our calling uh, is that, you know, there's an assumption, I think, by many uh, Christians in the pew that uh, pastors, theologians uh, should be 
primarily respectful of the laws that they have been given by God and, and that society requires laws in order to have civilization and order and uh, a fair playing field and all of that. Uh, but part of what we wrestle with as ministers, clergy, is that all laws are not necessarily conformed to the moral law uh, or to uh, what we sense to be God's will for the world. And so some of the work that we have to do is actually difficult because it is more about challenging the political powers and the laws as they are written to get them changed, to get more humane uh, sort of uh, enforcement uh, or application of those laws. Uh, and uh, when you think about the work you do in the classroom, what sorts of things do you, uh, conversations do you have to have with students about these tensions? That is a fantastic question and one that uh, we tend to address in, uh, I, I do teach uh, a class that is called Church in Social Context, but I also teach Moral Theology, Christian Ethics. And uh, before I answer the question, I'm going to refer to a couple of examples uh, in scripture that provide perhaps certain parameters as, as in response of our responsibility in relationship to the laws and the state. You know the story well, Rahab. She lied blatantly to protect the spies. And what happens to her? She is blessed by God and she ends up in the genealogy of Jesus. And then yeah. you have the, the midwives that saved the life of Moses. There was a specific law from the state, from the empire, given mm -hmm. to all the persons, all the subjects in that particular arena, and they disobeyed. And because of their disobedience, Moses is born and he delivers the people of Israel out of Egypt. So you have a number of instances. Abraham says, it's not my wife, it's my sister. And then that turns out to be a blessing. Jacob and Esau, and I keep going and going, so... What I'm suggesting is exactly what you're describing, that we have a moral obligation that is higher. We have a higher calling, that our faithfulness and our loyalty and duty is to represent God's principles, God's reign here on earth. And sometimes they align with God and some, uh, the laws of the land align with God, and sometimes they don't. In one of the dramatic, uh, drastic cases that I present in class, I asked my students to transport themselves to Germany during World War II. In the worst of the cases, I mean, it is against the law to protect Jews and many Christians were faithful and you know the stories and they protected them. But what would, a, what would a pastor do under those circumstances? And we can come back to the U.S. What would a pastor do during this labor years of the civil rights movement? What is our role as Christians in, when we have this uh, uh, dilemmas that we face in terms of should we obey the state or should we obey the law of God? Certainly, I mean, uh, going back to your question and from the Methodist perspective in that chapter that I wrote, Wesley himself, he was subscribed to a more Kantian understanding, deontological understanding, where the law and the duty of ours, our duty is to fulfill the law and to be obedient. But then he has this experience in Aldersgate. He encounters God in a personal way. And then he says, no, I think it is what is important here is to please God and to reflect God's character and to love God and to love neighbor. And I think he would say, 
you know the the story in, in the gospels that is you know what's what is the main uh principle what is the main law to love god and to love neighbor he said well i think he would interpret this yes to love god is easy but instead of saying the second command is this to love your neighbor he would say the first commandment is love god and another way to say that is love your neighbor as yourself so you cannot say that you love god and that you're obedient to god when you cannot love the persons that are close to you and again, this love implies respect and treating them with dignity in the conversations that I've been suggesting all along. Yes, you are entitled to your position. You're entitled to have these political understandings. But at the end of the day, go down, meet them where they are, hear the stories, begin to see the human aspect of this conversation. In fact, laws are supposed to be a kind of way of protecting human dignity and of making it possible for everyone to participate in a flourishing society. And when those laws are written and enforced in such a way as they deny that privilege to some and favor others, then they are actually not functioning in the way God's intention for law is, is meant, right? So, uh, so then the question is, how, how do people of faith uh, address that? And sometimes it means that we have to speak uh, boldly against public policies, politicians who uh, advance those uh, policies, because we are defending life and the image of God in every person. Uh, and this makes us uh, somewhat unpopular I think, with, with people who are so uh, uh, committed to, whether they know it or not, a, a defense of, uh, of national identity, of uh, the sort of the, the connection between their, their Christian faith and nationalism. Uh, and uh, it, it becomes very, very difficult for us to break through. But I, I guess, uh, Ugo, this is, this is part of what I consider how we're called to carry the cross, right? Um, the, this, uh, I, I think sometimes ministers um, are shy to do so because it will cause suffering, but consider the suffering of migrants uh, and what they're going through, right? Uh, and so there, there's lots of reason for us to uh, shift our behavior if we are focusing on those who are suffering rather than protecting those of us who are not. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's thinking about popular culture and our state of the country and our society. Uh, I think you're right. I think many ministers, uh, they want to be more popular and they want to attract more people. And it's easier to do that when you don't engage in these kinds of conversations. If you right. preach what people want to hear and if you affirm things that they already believe, well, that's easy. And in our society, I've been thinking about this for quite some time now. We, we are, some of us are concerned about being offensive and some of us are concerned about not being offensive enough. Mm -hmm. I, I think the gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. It's political in nature. But you're absolutely right. I think we need to consider the suffering of migrants and immigrants, but at the same time, we need to consider it the suffering of Jesus Christ. He paid the price for being a voice in the desert, for preaching the good news 
And for some people, it wasn't such a good news. It was bad news because he's going against the powers and, and the empire and, and proclaiming the news of Jesus Christ and embracing people that are left out by society. And by doing so, he said, hey, we don't like this. And he got crucified. So if that is our example. Our calling as ministers is, is a tough one because we need to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And sometimes proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ is offensive to some persons. And as you say, sometimes we need to take it to the square and into the political arena and to tell a person, say, hey, how can you claim to be a Christian in, in what you are doing with these policies, with these laws, is far away from embracing the dignity of all persons? There's a loss in uh, the Anglo church itself, I think, too, by our not uh, being in relationship with uh, people of Latin descent, uh, Christians uh, who uh, share the same faith as we, we say, uh, but understand and read the Bible and experience the grace of God on a daily basis in ways that maybe we don't fully uh, in, our, um, in our experience of greater social and economic privilege. What do you, would you think about uh, the, the church uh, that you know is vibrant and is experiencing the same gospel, say, on the other side of the border, yeah. or of those who are themselves among us? Of it, what, what is the experience of the Christian faith that we should hear and learn that would actually be transformative for us if we were in relationship? That's a great question. Thank you so much for asking uh, about this particular dynamic. Uh, here, I think you and I discussed this before our time together. Hospitality is a very important uh, Christian tradition practice. And I want to go use that particular analogy or that particular concept of hospitality because I think it fits well what you're asking. Uh, typically, those who are in power, those who have the positions of privileged, they love to be the host. They love to, they say, well, we welcome everybody, but we yes. welcome them in our own terms. We welcome them and they have to adjust to what we like and we welcome them and we don't want to change anything. Well, yeah. hospitality, according to the biblical tradition, is reciprocal. For yeah. hospitality to work, the host must become the guest, and the guest will become the host. So while we can, we can learn from one another, that is an important concept and notion. Yes, we are two distinct, uh, different kinds of congregations and with different cultural uh, points of views. And quite often uh, in my work, in my experience as a pastor, there are some amazing, hospitable Anglo congregations, but they want to change nothing. Yeah. So one of the things that we need to learn from one another is that this, this, even though the power differential is tremendous, how can we learn from one another? How can we bring this, the host becoming the guest? And how can we learn from one another? I, I think from the, from the Hispanic tradition, the church is um, very, it has many things to offer. It's very vibrant in many ways, not only in terms of the cultural components, but the way that we understand the world. We are, we're community oriented. It's something that many Anglos tend to be very individualistic and see the faith as a personal decision. For us, it's more community-based. 
Yeah. Uh, some Anglo churches tend to be extremely concerned about the time in the service. For uh-huh. us, it's more personal oriented. And, you know, we come and go in the service. When does it start? When everybody gets here? When does it end? When everybody leaves? <laughs> so there are a number of things that we can learn from one another. I'm not saying that one is better than the other. I served the last church that I pastored before I became a professor. I had to learn multiple expressions and I had to encounter and tell my, my congregation that we need to be sensitive to all the different groups that we had in our congregation. And we expanded certain things and we introduced different songs and different traditions. And at the end of the day, yeah, it was fantastic, but it, it takes a while for us to learn to be that, to, to engage in that reciprocal, mutually transformative relationship. Well, uh, I am uh, delighted that we've had this chance to visit. I, I think it's, um, it's just helpful for us to hear that uh, some of these complicated matters really are more are, are complicated more because we want to make them complicated. Uh, and if we wanted to boil it down to what is the human thing to do? What is uh, the thing that our faith calls us to do? Uh, then, you know, that takes the lead, right? It, it, and everything else becomes, okay, we can find a solution to this uh, if we don't start out by excusing our behavior uh, by making it all so very complicated. You're absolutely right, indeed. It's quite easy. Uh, I, I used um, a video, a documentary of people of Les Chambon, a group of Huguenots in France that welcomed mm-hmm. Jews, uh, and they welcomed 5,000 of them during World War II. Yeah. And one of the persons interviewed did asked the same question. Why, is, why are you so surprised? This is what all Christians are supposed to do. Love God <laughs> and love neighbor. It is so simple. Why do you get it so complicated? You don't need a task force. You don't need a committee. Just live your faith in the public arena. Love God and love neighbor. That is, that's, that's the answer. Well, we are all served better because of your leadership at Perkins and your teaching. And I thank you for joining us on Good God and look forward to our continuing ways of interacting. Thank you so much also for your contributions and your leadership here at Perkins as well. We appreciate that very much and for your ministry and for your service, not only to your congregation, but to the large uh, society and community at large. Thank you so much, George. You're welcome. Thank you. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2021 by Faith Commons.